I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, author Daniel Bergner sets out on a journey to better understand modern psychiatry and discovers that not much has changed over the last 40 years when it comes to treatment. This is kind of like treating the brain as a water balloon. You're injecting chemicals into that water balloon, and yes, they have some ameliorative effect, but those chemicals are spreading throughout the water balloon. They're that inexact, and side effects ensue. And later, shifting attitudes towards mental disorders, how alternative therapies and mindsets to treatment can offer hope. By creating a space where people can share these experiences, you're not gonna create a situation where hallucinations flourish and take over. In fact, quite the opposite. You're going to reduce isolation, reduce the sense of deviance, allow people to cope with their conditions. New approaches to understanding how our minds work and the implications for treating mental disorders. That's all ahead on Life Examined. If you have or know of someone who struggles with mental illness, you are not alone. Since COVID, rates of anxiety and depression have increased, especially amongst the youth. And half of Americans surveyed in a 2021 National Institutes of Health study reported increased symptoms. Less common are bipolar disorder or psychosis with more severe symptoms like delusions or hearing voices. For families and patients, it's a frightening struggle, a search for the best medication, a cure, an easy fix. While psychiatry treatment and perhaps social acceptance may have advanced some over the years, the workings of the mind still remains largely mysterious. Antipsychotic drugs and SSRIs are thought to balance out the chemicals in the brain, but are often discontinued because of their powerful side effects. After his brother was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and then rejected medication to still lead a fulfilling life, New York Times bestselling author Daniel Bergner set out to better understand the thinking behind modern psychiatry. Bergner chronicles his brother's story, attitudes towards mental health, and the limitations of medications in his latest book called The Mind in the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and the Search for Our Psyches. Daniel Bergner, welcome to Life Examined. Such a pleasure to be here talking with you. Let's just talk immediately about your brother, who is, uh, I sense the reason that you wrote this book to begin with, his story your observances of him, but but tell us tell us who he is and and how how he frames these much larger conversations. So, my brother is the genesis of this book, and his story propels the book forward. When we were in our early twenties, he was put on a locked psychiatric ward, diagnosed as severely bipolar. And our terrified parents were told that he might well take his own life if he didn't adhere to his psychiatric medications. Hmm. He was an aspiring musician, dancer, quite talented, found that he could not perform, especially on the piano, with some of the side effects of the medication that both caused tremors and also left him feeling, as he put it, like there was a blanket on his brain. And so after a few years, against psychiatric advice, went off his medications, there were definitely setbacks for several years, but it's been almost 30 years now since there's been such a setback, and he's led a flourishing, deeply meaningful life, which I'll tell you a bit about later. And that raised all kinds of questions for us about society's prevailing belief in what's known as the medical model of uh, psychiatric treatment, the idea that our brains are just another organ, that our chemistry just needs to be balanced out. If we're having psychiatric trouble, that is balanced out chemically. Um, so this book grew out of my brother's story and out of the questions that he and I both felt needed to be addressed more candidly and more deeply. Can you talk a little bit about what a bipolar disorder is? And I and I want to say quickly that, you know, we use these terms now in popular culture very lightly. Oh, you're so bipolar. Stop being so bipolar. When really, I maybe you can spend a little bit of time talking about what the diagnosis actually is and, and what it was like observing your brother when he may have been really in the throes of this disorder. So 
I should first clarify, he rejects the diagnosis. Mm. And we'll, we'll come back to that. But the disorder is characterized in general by very steep fluctuations up and down of mood. So to manic states uh, and to states of deep depression, it's often characterized by states of grandiosity and even uh, delusory sense of one's own power, one's own special abilities, and, and the hospital records, which we still have, do document that in my brother. So this is, however you diagnose it, however you label it, this is what he was up against. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the sort of proliferation of this phrase bipolar and the way some people just toss it around, I'm so bipolar. The condition does have a specific set of diagnostic criteria that go with it, but it's worth saying that all of our psychiatric conditions are rather subjective in their diagnoses, and, and bipolar is great evidence of that. Over a recent 10-year period, the rate at which young people were diagnosed with bipolar, or what's become known as bipolar II, increased by 40 times. Hmm. So although the condition might have been underdiagnosed previously, certainly 40 times raises questions about overdiagnosis and certainly points to the subjectivity of the way we're seeing psychiatric conditions. Right. And bipolar 2 has often been considered a more mild form as it was characterized. And then you'd even get to another form, something like cyclothymia. I mean, so these things exist on such a spectrum. But I, I do want to say, I mean, for those that have more severe cases of, of bipolar 1, I mean, it can be quite severe. I mean, the, the depression is not light, but it's, it's, you know, almost catatonic at times. So do you think that's fair saying as well? I do. I also think it's important to say that I'm not here to preach dispensing with medication. Mm -hmm. I mean, our parents' terror was legitimate. Right. They were scared they were going to lose their son. And I think part of the sort of propulsion of the book is just acknowledging and dealing with that family fear, which I know so intimately. So definitely not preaching against medication, but yes, raising questions about the way we view our psyches, about the way we think about mental health, and about the limitations of medications, whether it's medication for the sort of common uh, disorders of simple depression, anxiety, or the m more uncommon bipolar, yeah. and then psychotic conditions. So tell me then about where some of this research took you in terms of understanding psychiatric medication, because there's so much we can talk about here. I mean, whether it's how, from how I see it, that the medication really hasn't evolved much in the past few decades or further, or how it's been marketed, but where did, where did the next part of the story take you thinking about this? So... The book has two interwoven elements. One is the narrative element. My brother's story, story of a woman named Caroline who wrestles with psychosis and the story of a very accomplished civil rights litigator who wrestles with depression and anxiety. Meanwhile, my brother's experience sent me to the labs of some of the most preeminent psychiatric researchers in our country people who had devoted their long careers to finding better psychotropics, better pharmaceuticals to treat our minds. Um, and what they were saying to me invariably was we haven't made any true progress in psychotropics for at least the past half century. Now to hear that level of candor probably shouldn't have surprised me because during the writing, there had been a pretty prominent New England Journal of Medicine lead opinion piece 
stating that our biologic approach to psychiatry had really run into dead ends and that even as sort of in common culture, we embrace that biologic vision still and think, oh, if I could just get the right medication, I'd, I'd be better fixed, even cured, that really the experts know otherwise. And yet to hear such candor from these people who'd spent 40 years or more uh, in search of better medications was startling to me and a, a lesson to me about where we are and how we might have to rethink where we're going next. So my understanding is that when you treat something like bipolar, the options are a class of drugs called mood stabilizers. The most common of them being lithium, there's also lamictal and others, but maybe you can talk about some of the drugs they were using on your brother. And a little while ago, you did talk about the side effects, which can be quite severe. Quite severe. And that's something that we don't often think enough about. That is, psychiatry, for the most part, I don't want to unfairly generalize, but for the most part, thinks in terms of risk management. So when you've got a risk of suicide, you're going to address that and that alone and not spend much time thinking about blanket on the brain, tremors, which come pretty frequently, loss of balance, etc. It comes pretty frequently and life-changingly with a drug like lithium. My brother was also given Haldol, which at the time was a common antipsychotic because of those delusions that he was having about special powers. And Haldol, and then the drugs that have since replaced it in the antipsychotic line, have even more serious side effects, so real movement disorders, disorders that resemble Parkinson's syndrome, uh, disorders, I mean, side effects that cause tremendous weight gain, not modest, but 60, 70, 80 pounds of fast weight gain uh, really sort of set in as a kind of sedative and cause a kind of torpor. So 30 to 60%, by best estimates of people given antipsychotics, go off them. Some people argue that's just because of the disorganization of their lives, but other people would point out maybe they're voting with their feet that the side effects are so devastating that you know they'd prefer, at least to a degree, to wrestle with what are really, really difficult symptoms, voices, hallucinations, etc. So the summary is these tend to be terribly imperfect drugs. They don't work all that well in terms of addressing the main symptoms of the conditions. And then the side effects come in often very powerfully. Mm. Were you able to look at how some of these drugs were initially invented? I mean, the most common class of drugs are SSRIs, which are you know used to treat depression and anxiety. Um, this would be Prozac, Zoloft, uh, Celexa, things like that. I think there's kind of interesting stories as to how some of these even came to be. And a lot of them came to be by happenstance. Now, this is somewhat true of our more typical medical drugs, the classic example of is penicillin. But to an overwhelming degree, our psychiatric drugs came about by happenstance. For instance, the earliest antipsychotic, Thorazine, came about, uh, <laughs> had an origin, I should say, uh, in the Victorian era as a kind of fabric dye. Hmm. And then in a series of sort of coincidences and inadvertent discoveries, uh, evolved into an antipsychotic. Similar stories can be told to some degree about uh, the antidepressants. And it's interesting, the discovery of these drugs, so sort of from the 50s, you know, in, into the 70s, and again, then 
uh, with the most common SSRIs, uh, which came along in the 80s and 90s. Um, what happened was, and this kind of converged with my brother's experience, psychiatry as a profession was looking to make itself more scientific, more medical. It felt under threat and inferior uh, as the 60s, 70s, uh, and early 80s uh, came along. And meanwhile, here were these drugs, which at the time offered uh, the appearance of hope. And so just as my brother was placed on that uh, lock ward, these two forces were converging into the dominant role of the biomedical model that we know and kind of cling to today. That is, again, our brains are organs. They can be treated as such. We should think of them uh, in the common analogy. Uh, we should think of treating them almost the way we think of treating diabetes. We're going to mm -hmm. balance out your system with insulin. Here, we're going to balance out your system with uh, chemicals. As one of the researchers I referred to earlier said to me, this is kind of like in treating the brain as a water balloon. You're injecting chemicals into that water balloon. And yes, they have some ameliorative effect, but those chemicals are spreading throughout the water balloon. They're that inexact. And of course, side effects ensue. Yeah, and the the common term that's used to talk about these chemicals are neurotransmitters. So the idea is that someone may be lacking serotonin or dopamine, norepinephrine. Um, these are the kind of terms you hear a lot. And uh, perhaps you could say more about that, but it seems that if you could find that proper balance, get those you know into the right order, that things like depression, anxiety, or bipolar would essentially clear up, right? Right. And there are a number of almost comical advertisements run by the drug companies that refer to this hope. Uh, one drug company for a psychiatric conference uh, hired Salvador Dali to create a wonderful exhibit, including a cocoon and a butterfly, indicating that if you just balance out your chemicals, you're you know, all your anxiety is going to dissipate. Um, others talked about uh, your brain is a kind of cake, and all you need to do is balance out the ingredients. Um, it's pretty well established by now that we cannot ascribe our psychiatric conditions, whether they're common or the uncommon end of things, to deficits in neurotransmitters. Um, it's been a long time coming, but I note that just in the last few weeks, there's been a paper addressing the flaw in the kind of deficient serotonin model of depression. And that paper is suddenly making the rounds. I see it coming at me on, you know, on the internet from lay sources as well as as psychiatric expert sources. And it's it's interesting. I think we're about to, as a culture, really grapple with uh, the limitations of the purely medical model. We want so badly, I think, as a society to have that quick fix. And, you know, medicine promises that, but our minds just may be far too complicated to be addressed in that way. Let's explore that a little bit more. What makes you think that the medical model for treating psychiatric illnesses is flawed? I mean, you talked there for a second about how the brain is maybe not uh, an organ like any other in the body. So why, why should we begin to question this a little bit more? Right. So this is the source of the title of my book, The Mind and the Moon. So back in the early 60s, in fact, just a few weeks before he was assassinated, Kennedy, after promising that we would soon put a man on the moon, also promised that uh, American science was so powerful that we would soon get to the remote reaches of the mind, as he put it, and cure psychiatric conditions mm. with chemicals, with medicine. 
Um, of course, we got to the moon rather quickly. We haven't gotten yet uh, to those remote reaches of the mind or to those chemical cures. And the question is, why? So one of the researchers I spent time with was a fascinating uh, investigator of depression uh, named Eric Nessler, put it to me this way. He said, I can take any other organ in the body and I can cut out a little piece of it. In many cases, I can even give you one cell of it and use the example of a, of a heart cell, and it will be doing what the organ is doing. You can Google this, your listeners can, you can look at a heart cell and it's pumping. But only with the brain is this profoundly not so. The neurons, the brain cells are not thinking, but somehow those 100 billion cells uh, with their almost infinitely more connections are creating thought where the individual components are not thinking. And that got me to thinking about how infinitely different perhaps the mind is from the brain. And then got me to thinking metaphorically, we got to the moon because it's physically there. Is the mind, the psyche, as opposed to the brain physically there? I'm not sure. And even if the answer is yes, we are a long, long, long way from it after over half century of pharmaceutical research attempts. This is a, a trend that you know we've talked about on the program, which is that the, the last frontier in a lot of medical science still appears to be the brain, you know, even with our MRIs and fMRIs and, and all this stuff, but there's still this kind of cloud of mystery as to how it works, which makes psychiatry and just I think psychology at large. I mean, that's one reason I think it's always been considered somewhat of an inferior science, because the mysteries, as you talk about, just remain so massive. But I don't think inferior is the right way to put it. I can hear people interpreting what I'm saying, possibly as a kind of nihilism, but it doesn't feel that way to me at all. It feels affirmative of a kind of mystery that surrounds who we are, that mm. perhaps defines who we are as humans, that makes the pursuit of treatment, whether by psychologists or psychiatrists or other practitioners, all the more profound an endeavor. And it just, it reminds me of something. I had a, a series of conversations with Steve Hyman, who uh, once ran the National Institute of Mental Health, it's the biggest funder of mental health research in the world. And he, and he's now all involved in, in the genetics of psychiatric disorders. And he just talked to me about you know, not too long ago, feeling absolutely optimistic that we would find the genetic aberrations that pointed to each disorder. And that what's happened since is that the possible genetic aberrations associated with each disorder has just multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. So with some of them were at 300 and counting. And what he called for was what he called epistemological humility. And I love that phrase. I asked him, well, how do you keep from being nihilistic? And he said, I'm not nihilistic. I'm still excited by the discoveries we make, but I put them in the context of this epistemological humility, this acknowledgement of our not knowing. And I think it is possible, really you would know far better than I, it is possible to practice from a position of not knowing, from a position of profound humility. And I think that's what my brother's story, Caroline's story, who's wrestled with psychosis, David's story, who's wrestled with depression and anxiety. I think that's what their journeys lead to, is mm -hmm. that humility. And this speaks to, I think, maybe what has fascinated us as humans, or how we've define ourselves, which is, I don't know, you go back to early 
psychology of Freud or Jung, the, the fascination with the unconscious or with the idea that we don't know everything about ourselves or how do we account for the spiritual sides of ourselves or the intuitive sides or things that cannot be explained very quickly through you know the scientific process. And so maybe you can talk about how some of these other factors can be potent in terms of the treatment of something like bipolar. I mean, we could use your brother as a very powerful example of this. Right. So this makes some people nervous, that is to veer away from the purely scientific, but I think it shouldn't. And we can take this direction in a number of ways. One is to talk about my brother, to talk about his embrace of spiritual practice as one of the elements that's helped him and that helps him reach out. So, you know, I, I said he's a great musician and his life has kind of come full circle. He One of his volunteer efforts is to go on to psych wards and lead sings mm. uh, with the patients there. Now, that could sound very corny, but it's actually very, very moving and connective and builds community. Um, we could also go back, though, uh, if people are easier with it, to one of the hardcore scientists I spent time with uh, who really questioned the direction we've taken in mental health. She's She's been researching really me tiny mechanical elements inside the brain and their relationship to our psychiatric conditions, but she really questioned whether she was doing humanity any good at all. And we ended up talking about the sort of recent hype around uh, psychedelic treatments. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talked about was a kind of division in that research. I think the research in general and the potential uh, within psychedelic treatment may be overhyped or oversimplified, but there are trials that have worked quite well. And those trials, uh, particularly one large one, has a very specific approach. I've read through every page of the very long manual, and it combines the psychedelic chemical with therapy, hours and hours of it, that directs the subject to connect him or her themselves to a larger world, to feel oneness, to feel uh, part of something bigger than oneself. You could put all this for simplicity's sake in a kind of set of Eastern religious terms. And I think that's indicative of something that we may have to look for the spiritual whether we talk about traditional religions or this, just this sense of something bigger than oneself uh, as one promising approach to treating our psyches. And if I can, for just one last minute on this, so that doesn't only apply to depression, anxiety, PTSD, where the psychedelic research mostly has focused, but Caroline, who really, uh, sort of faces the most severe obstacles, voices telling her to harm herself, harm others, uh, from when she's a very young child, finally, because of the devastating side effects of the antipsychotic medication that she's been on since childhood, um, turns in a different direction and leads a movement that's really all about these things, all about building community, seeing things in more spiritual, less materialistic, that is the brain in less materialistic terms, uh, finding really a new way um, and asking us to think in a new way. And I underline us, all of us, about who we are as human beings. And I think one of the most beautiful examples of this, and this is 
this is mainstream. I mean, this is not, you know, some weird little faction is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is something I've studied in school. And of course, I have lots of dear friends that have been through this program. And the emphasis on a higher power, however that is defined by the individual, is a crucial aspect of a program that has helped millions and millions of people out. And maybe some get more from that aspect of it. The higher power is more important to them. And for some, maybe it's not. But I think that, you know, this was Bill Wilson, the founder. This was an early concept that was introduced. I mean, he had conversations with Carl Jung, who said, the only way I've ever seen alcoholism treated is if somebody has a spiritual experience. That that was a documented conversation. I guess I've also heard it could go even further back to William James. But Let's just say that, that this is actually kind of proven and out there and in the world around us. Absolutely. Um, so AA is a great example because it's so common and, and we're so, in general, comfortable with it. What's not often discussed is that spiritual element. Yes, that idea of turning one's life over to something larger, to as A puts it, a higher power. And I'm not sure why we shouldn't do the same with our psychiatric conditions as we encourage people to do with their alcoholism or their narcotics addiction. addiction. I'm reminded again of, of the researcher with whom I discussed psychedelics, who also said, we may have to turn away from the idea of treating our psychiatric conditions the same way we would treat a broken leg. It may not be like that at all. Mm. And we may have to find ways to hold our pain. And this goes back to that AA analogy. It's like, can I place myself including my perfectly a human pain within something larger, something beyond myself uh, as a way to cope, to manage, and really to do something more than cope and manage. Because I would point to my brother's life. I would point to Caroline's. These are journeys, sorry for the spoiler alert, but these are journeys that end triumphantly. And I think the last sort of third of the book gets into that and gets into the spiritual questions and directions that may be raised by that triumph. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW, and my guest this hour is Daniel Bergner, New York Times journalist and the author of The Man in the Moon, my brother's story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches. When we come back, Bergener makes the urgent case for a different approach and more expansive vision of mental health. You can stay connected to Life Examined by finding us on Facebook. We read each comment our members write, and we love it when you chime in. You can find the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard New York Times journalist and author Daniel Bergner suggest that maybe it's time to incorporate something new into mental health treatment, and that treating psychiatric conditions is not the same as treating a broken leg. Bergner talks about his brother's embrace of a spiritual practice, of music and community, and building a sense of something bigger than oneself, as promising approaches to treating our psyches. As we rejoin the conversation with Daniel Bergner, I ask him more about the idea of building community and connection. You know, I think this is an issue that I feel is particularly acute in the kind of American rugged individualist spirit, which 
infuses so much of the country we live in. And I mean, on this show, we've talked about, you know, yeah, there's been an epidemic with COVID, but but an epidemic of loneliness that has just been eating away at people in this country for a really long time. I mean, the way that family structures are set up. And again, just this this constant push towards having to do this on our own all the time. And I think it's interesting when we start to think about what is the impact of that on our mental health and on these mental disorders, and that maybe we need to think more about community and connection. And I, I hear the point you're making, which is also maybe then rethinking a little bit of that medical model, which has nothing to do with like the nature of one's relationships to the world. Right. I think community connection, somehow battling isolation is so relevant, whether we're talking about the more severe conditions, psychosis, or the more common depression, two things. So, you know, I spent time recently with uh, New York Mayor's uh, Adams's new head of the Department of Health, whose background is all in mental health. And we were talking amid some of the more violent incidents that have happened over the last months. And he said, you know, he's, he's a proponent of the medical model, but yet even he said, you know, we've got to think upstream. We've got to think about reducing isolation because if we're just thinking about the moment of crisis and getting people medicated before they pick up a gun, that's just never going to work. We have to think in terms of battling the isolation that sets in far, far earlier. And then I'm also on the more common end of things, and I think so many of us know this, I know this, you know, when you're in a state of depression, what are you thinking about reflexively? The self, the self, myself, myself, myself. Mm. It's just such a simple way to frame it. It's too simple a way, and yet it's a lesson worth taking note of that the way out is often to get outside the South. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I mean, one thing I've, you know, I've noticed as a therapist or, you know, working with supervisors is that, and this is, this is anecdotal. I mean, it's just something that I've noticed, which is that mental disorders like depression or anxiety really tend to bloom. I mean, they, they, they intensify when one's isolation intensifies. So the more lonely you are, the more it seems that these these forces can really, really take hold. And just as you say, it's often the hardest thing is to get outside of that. But I mean, it's, I guess I've seen this just a lot clinically with people I've worked with. Yeah, I think getting outside of that is so essential. Makes me think of Caroline, who again had battled such a severe condition. And I loved the following. One of the ways out for her was stumbling onto a roller derby team in Asheville, North Carolina, where Mm. she actually became a kind of star. And she described a kind of breakthrough, which was that she realized that working as a team in this sort of sport of chaos and violence, it's kind of a rugby-like event without the ball, that working as a team and being able to kind of create a sort of order, a team level order out of this chaos, allowed her a new way to think about her own condition. And it was really the the sort of camaraderie and team element that she found there that gave her the beginnings of a way out. Mm. I'd love to hear more about that, or if there were tips or more stories you heard in which people were able to kind of move from that place of loneliness and, and isolation towards one of community. And uh, and if sometimes, I know we've been questioning a medical model, but if, if sometimes a medical model can help somebody at least take the first step to get out in that direction, or maybe it's not needed at all, but I'm curious what you think. Well, absolutely. I think we should note that there are people who 
use psychiatric medications, sometimes in a kind of calibrated way, hmm. sometimes in a more temporary way than conventional psychiatry would have it. Um, yes, as a way to mitigate conditions, that's really important. No. Um, at the same time, let's go back to my brother. So he now is the pastor of a church outside New Haven. It's a quite liberal and wonderful church that combines a kind of oldish New England congregation with uh, a Nigerian immigrant population. But I think in ministering to his congregation, he finds that sense of community that can be so transformative. Um, you know, I think about David who has battled depression, anxiety, and then the little talked about uh, withdrawal symptoms from uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications when he decided they weren't doing that much for him and he wanted to go off, uh, again, because of, of side effects and just because of questions about the self. So he's battling uh, these withdrawal symptoms. He's battling, you know, now sort of a new set of, of depressive symptoms that follow with the withdrawal. But a lot of our discussions focused on his child and just staying connected there as a way to get through. And I'm happy to say, uh, though this wasn't true at the end of the book, I think he actually is turning a corner and, and is getting through again because he was able, in his case, I'd say just barely, to stay connected. Hmm. Maybe you can talk also just a little bit about the end of this book. You know, you, you said how your brother has found such meaning, you know, through his work as a pastor and Caroline joining this, this roller derby club. Are there any other aspects um, of how some of these people you talked about continued to thrive and continue to lead healthy lives without having to be on a purely medical model. Yeah. So let's go back to Caroline. So the uh, roller derby was just part of it. Uh, she then goes on to lead a movement, uh, which is characterized in two, I think, really innovative ways. One is uh, leading the Hearing Voices Network, which rather than the kind of conventional view of let's take these frightening symptoms, these hallucinations, et cetera, and try to squelch them with medication, which often doesn't work, or certainly try to silence them. She goes in the other direction and leads groups which uh, allow those voices to be described and discussed and given a place uh, it's, again, quite analogous to AA. And the idea is actually by giving, by creating a space where people can share these experiences, you're not going to augment the voices. You're not going to create a situation where hallucinations flourish and take over. In fact, quite the opposite. You're going to reduce isolation, reduce the sense of deviance, and thus allow people to cope with their conditions and walk out into the world. And often, not always, because this is, you know, a condition with a lot of challenges, but often function. Um, she also leads, and here things are going to get a bit controversial, but I think really profound, an alternative approach to suicide prevention. So the typical approach is, let me control this situation. Let me put you on a ward, often medicate you heavily. Let me prevent you from taking your own life. Well, that the evidence that that works beyond the hospital doors uh, is not very good at all. Um, and the evidence that that's the system that prevails is in our new national 988 
uh, suicide hotline network, which I don't want to discourage people from calling, but the facts are that it tells callers it's confidential and then uh, rates what they're saying. And if they're saying is what they're saying is scary, sends police and ambulance to the person's door without consent. Um, her approach, totally different. Her approach is let's put people in a room, let's allow them to talk about what they're going through, their pain, their impulses towards suicide. And in that way, simply by creating connection, simply by trusting in the force of sharing with the absolute promise that no matter what you say, no one's going to call any hotline, no one's going to dispatch a police car to your door, no one's going to come with an ambulance, that you will allow people possibly even to thrive because in connection they will feel some sense of healing now i've attended those the latter uh type of group suicide prevention group several times and it's really it's a resonant experience there's all kinds of reason to think that caroline's right her motto is when we're controlling to go back to my parents, that's all they wanted to do. They were terrified, control this situation. But she would say, when you're controlling, you're not connecting, and therefore you are ultimately not helping the person in trouble. Yeah, it's a, a really interesting story. And, and I think now we're starting to see uh, a movement that is that is related to something you said just a minute ago, which is folks that have, you know, have been delivered a diagnosis, um, maybe they're experiencing psychosis or bipolar, are beginning to slowly uh, reject a medical model. There was a piece in the New York Times about this just a month ago, I remember, and and I wonder while that's happening, we may also need a larger societal shift towards destigmatizing these disorders that we think are kind of scary, right? I mean, if when you think of somebody who is experiencing psychosis, they're hearing voices. I mean, we've learned to fear them and think they need to be locked up. But really, if we can be a little bit more open-minded about this and say, it's okay for people to experience these things, there's room for this, there can be conversations for it, that that has to kind of come along with this larger conversation we're having as well, don't you think? I do, and actually that piece you're referring to, I wrote. Um, ah, of course. So, uh, you know, I've been a, occasionally ridiculed for this, for saying that there should be room, as you put it, for these other experiences, but I, I'll stick with that. I, by relegating, marginalizing people with very different minds, we are not helping anyone, including ourselves. We're not going to be preventing those rare but terrible uh, incidents of violence. We're not going to be aiding the people who are suffering. We're not going to be helping families. Um, we're going to have to embrace a more expansive vision of difference, um, you know, it it is scary. You know, voices. It feels like just our our sort of worst Halloween fantasy come to life sometimes, but that's where we're failing. I mean, uh, Caroline would just say, "Look, we've we're enculturated to see." difference and experience difference in this Halloween like way. Yeah. And we need rather to see and experience it in a deeper human way. Mm -hmm. Well, before we go, there, there was one really interesting story in this book and, and you call it the Turkey Prince parable. And I was wondering if you could share that with us and talk about the significance of it. Sure. So, Sometimes I'll ask my brother, what would you have wanted in your 20s? And because he's heard me, heard me recount the turkey prince, he'll say, I, I want someone to get under the table with me. I wanted that. I would have wanted that. Uh, and, and 
treat me like the Turkey Prince. So the Turkey Prince is a rabbinic parable that was taught to me by an Israeli psychiatrist who had been quite conventional throughout much of his career and then become quite experimental. Uh, and the parable goes something like this. There was once a prince who believed he was a turkey and the distressed king and queen called on all their physicians and none succeeded in uh, curing the situation. But finally a sage comes along and says, let me try. And the sage gets under the table with the now naked turkey prince who won't eat except to peck at pieces of bone and bread that's on the floor under the table. And the sage gets naked and pecks along with the turkey prince. And the turkey prince is, is bewildered at first, but the, the sage says, well, I'm, I'm a turkey too, and begins to establish this profound under the table uh, relationship with the turkey prince. And in that way, uh, helps the turkey prince and brings the turkey prince back into society. And it's, it's really, it, it's just a reminder, again, of that isolation we talked about earlier. What do we want? We want someone to come there with us, not to insist when we're in our darkest moments that we just leap back up to the table and, and conform but rather uh, to join us where we are, to understand us rather than rush to treat us. I've been speaking with Daniel Bergner, author of The Mind in the Moon, my brother's story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches. Bergner is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and the author of five previous books. And uh, Daniel, this is, as perhaps you could tell in our listeners, a subject that is very close to my heart and my work. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the amount of time and care you put into this book and this conversation. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. And I really appreciate your care and your questions. It's great to talk with you. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And I'm curious to hear from our listeners. Do you think that we need to move beyond a medical model for treating mental disorders? Should we be rethinking medications? And do you find Bergner's argument persuasive that the mind is more complicated than just balancing out chemicals? We'd love for you to chime in and start the conversation on our Facebook page. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. You can connect with me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion. Thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next week.